Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by T.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Mastering Ceremonies, Sylvia Winter. It has been our habit on this podcast to point out connections between episodes, and we've often tried to be helpful by specifying the older episodes by number. If you're interested in queuing up the older episodes so you can backtrack through previous parts of our story right after finishing the new episode, we're happy to save you the time of searching through titles. Sylvia Winter, the subject of our current episode, drew heavily and often on earlier figures in the Africana philosophical tradition. So there are many numbers we could give you to help you better understand the background of her thought. Recent ones like 132 and 133, which dealt with Edouard Glissant, and older ones like episode 90 on C.L.R. James, or episodes 105 through 107 on Franz Fanon. For a sign of Winter's uniqueness and ambition as a thinker, though, consider the fact that she is the only one we're covering who takes inspiration from the Africana thinkers covered all the way back in episode 2. Can't remember who they were? Don't feel bad, because these were people whose names it is impossible to discover. It was in that episode that we speculated on the birth of philosophical thinking in Africa, many tens of thousands of years before the start of recorded history. In an interview she gave in 2007, Winter assigns signal importance to the Blombos Cave, which, as we said in episode 2, is an archaeological site where paleoanthropologists have found beads made of shells and engraved pieces of ochre, indicating symbolic thinking of the kind we associate with human cognition and language, long before there is evidence of this anywhere else. For Winter, Blombos teaches us that humans are not just biological beings that are physically born, but also symbolic beings that bring themselves into existence through processes of ritual initiation. Winter also relates the reconstruction of behavior at Blombos to the work of another major thinker in the Africana tradition, Aimé Césaire. She claims that what we learn from Blombos helps us understand Césaire's idea of poetic knowledge, as articulated in his Poetry and Knowledge, the 1944 paper he delivered at a philosophy conference in Haiti. And for more on that, listen to episode 88. Winter is the oldest of any of the thinkers we've covered in this series who are, at the time of recording, still alive, beating the runner-up, Bole Soyinka, by six years. Winter therefore lived through much of the 20th century. She was born in 1928 in Cuba to Jamaican parents who moved back to Jamaica when she was still a child. By the 1960s, she was already well-known as a writer and intellectual in Jamaica, but for the ideas that have brought her increasing recognition as an important philosopher, we need to consider her writings from the last two decades of the 20th century. The key text initiating this remarkably productive period is a long article published in 1984, The Ceremony Must Be Found, with the subtitle, After Humanism. Over three decades later, in 2015, she published a sequel to this groundbreaking essay, we have good news and bad news about the sequel's title. The good news is that its main title is short, sweet, and given that imperative to find the ceremony in the main title of the earlier essay, rather satisfying, it's The Ceremony Found. The bad news, at least for fans of brevity, is that the essay's full title is The Ceremony Found, Towards the Autopoetic Turn Overturn, Its Autonomy of Human Agency and Extraterritoriality of Self-Cognition self and the hyphen connecting it to cognition appear in parentheses here. As this already indicates, Winter is not the easiest to read among great thinkers in the Africana tradition. 
That being said, the three decades of thought that stretch between the ceremony must be found and the ceremony found have come to be seen as some of the most daring and pathbreaking in the Africana tradition. That has in turn brought increased attention to the decades of her life and thought preceding the ceremony must be found. Winter went from Jamaica to England for her studies, as the younger Stuart Hall would later do. She studied Spanish at no less an institution than King's College London, gaining a master's degree in 1953. She was, however, less interested in writing and research during this period, and more concerned with being a dancer and actress. As she herself once noted, her affinity for the performing arts was thanks to her mother, an actress who performed in radio soap operas. She toured Europe and eventually spent some time living in Italy and then Sweden with her first husband, a Norwegian man. After this marriage ended, she moved back to England and met the man who became her second husband, Jan Carew, an important Afro-Guyanese creative writer and intellectual. The two of them wrote plays, sometimes together. One play they co-wrote, titled The Big Pride, was adapted for British television. It is also in England that Winter completed her novel, The Hills of Hebron, which she initially wrote as a play. One of the central characters, Miss Gotha, was inspired by Amy Ashwood Garvey, who Winter had met in London and whom we'd featured here on the podcast in episode 75. Paget Henry has argued that, even in this novel, first published in 1962, we can find Winter drawing attention to our cognitive categories of historical construction, the realities they establish, the possibilities they define, the distortions they introduce, and the limits they set. In other words, the philosophical concerns associated with her later work were there from the beginning. Winter and Carew decided to leave England to go home, and they first chose Carew's country, Guyana, or British Guyana, as it was still called then. We discussed in episode 123 on Walter Rodney how racial cooperation in the initial founding of a left-wing party in Guyana, the People's Progressive Party, eventually gave way to racial competition between that party, supported primarily by Indo-Guyanese people, and the People's National Congress, supported primarily by Afro-Guyanese people. Winter witnessed the tragedy of this racial conflict, which included rioting and violence. In a later interview, looking back at her experience in Guyana, she acknowledged that she came to Guyana a Marxist, but what she saw there led her to ponder Marxism's limitations, given the ways she felt the theory was ill-equipped to address Guyana's tragic situation. Having decided she could be of no use in Guyana at that point, Winter went to Jamaica in 1963 and secured a lectureship at the University of the West Indies. Carew followed, but the marriage did not last, and he eventually returned to England. Winter, the creative writer, became, more prominently, Winter, the literary critic, as the 1960s went on and drew to a close. Her old love of dance popped up as a theme in her work at this time. She published a piece in 1970 about Jamaican folk dance, arguing that intellectuals had been slow to take such cultural forms seriously. As she put it, they had not bothered to offer an interpretation of meaning for things like Caribbean dances because they were too focused on texts and because the dances were rooted in African customs rather than the European history of ideas. That's typical of the combative approach she takes in much of her writing. Especially early on in her career, she was unsparing in her critique of other Caribbean authors, whom she considered too beholden to a European intellectual project. We see this in a classic essay she published in two parts in 1968 and 1969, entitled, We Must Learn to Sit Down Together and Talk About a Little Culture, Reflections on West Indian Writing and Criticism. Winter targets colleagues at the University of the West Indies, arguing that they have simply imported an English model of literary criticism for their writing on Caribbean literature. 
It did not take long for some of her fellow Caribbean writers to begin acknowledging her brilliance. The Barbadian poet and scholar Kamau Braithwaite, whom we last brought up in our episode on Glissant, was particularly struck by We Must Learn to Sit Down. Writing in 1976, Braithwaite enthused, This piece is one of our great critical landmarks, a major essay in literary ideas and the first to be written in the West Indies. Another Caribbean intellectual who is known to have greatly admired Winter is C.L.R. James. According to Aaron Kamogisha, James once jotted a note in the margins of his copy of a conference paper that Winter presented, boldly identifying Winter as the greatest mind the Caribbean has ever produced. Kamogisha's 2019 book, Beyond Coloniality, Citizenship and Freedom in the Caribbean Intellectual Tradition, takes James and Winter as its star thinkers. And if it is clear that the elderly James was excited about Winter's potential, Kamogisha makes an equally strong case for seeing Winter as influenced by James, and self-consciously so. He points out that Winter wrote more essays focused on James than on any other thinker. Kamogisha here mentions three essays, one from the 1980s and two from the 1990s, and later adds a fourth, James and the Castaway Culture of the Caribbean, which Winter delivered at a conference on James's work at the University of the West Indies in February 1972. James celebrated his 70th birthday in 1971, which seems to have inspired a number of efforts to appreciate his life's work up to that point. Indeed, we learn from Joshua Myers that Winter was at another event of this type the very next month, one that reminds us what was happening in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the time. This was Cedric Robinson's first year as a professor at the University of Michigan, which coincided with an extended visit by Walter Rodney, then on leave from the University of Dar es Salaam, and just about to publish his magnum opus, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa. In March of 1972, Robinson, Rodney, and Winter participated, along with others, in a conference called The Revolutionary Legacy of C.L.R. James. It featured closing remarks by the man of the hour, James, who would have come there from Washington, D.C., where he was living and teaching at the time. Winter's paper at the conference in Michigan was titled C.L.R. James and the Cultural Revolution. It celebrated James, above all, for his great refusal to take his place in the system, that is, his rejection of the class-based expectations of the colonial order and his place in it, in favor of solidarity with the black masses. Winter's participation in the conference presumably helped to prepare the way for her return to the University of Michigan the following year, to teach a mini-course on patterns of domination and liberation. This first extended stay in the United States was a sign of things to come. She moved to the U.S. in 1974 to take a job at UC San Diego and remained there for a few years before she joined the faculty at Stanford University, where she would stay until retirement. Reflecting in an interview on her pattern of movement, she marveled at how her decision to leave England for the Caribbean had seemed so final at one point. The dawning of the era of independence in the 1960s made her feel like she needed to do something, help build. So what pulled her away again and so permanently? Here's the explanation in her own words. So I go to Guyana and then to Jamaica, and I genuinely never thought I would ever leave it again. Then this black civil rights struggle, the whole black movement against segregation and so on, explodes in the United States. Then in its wake, a plurality of the movements springing up spontaneously and a profound intellectual questioning begins to take shape in the United States. Notice that the political upheavals of the time were not her direct motivation. She did not leave Jamaica for the U.S. with the primary aim of being an activist and organizer, for example. What brought her was a new opening of intellectual space, 
and opening directly resulting from the impact of the broader social struggles on institutions of higher education. Perhaps the simplest way to put it is that the birth of Black studies in the United States is what made it make sense for Winter to move. This is an appropriate time to begin discussing what Winter did in her 1984 essay, The Ceremony Must Be Found, because her appreciation of Black studies is ultimately part of a much larger picture she has of the history of humankind, elaborated in that essay. Now is also the time to warn you that although Winter is a very rewarding and subtle thinker, her prose can be extremely difficult. Here is a by no means atypical passage in which she argues for the need for a new science of human systems. This science, she writes, takes as the object of its inquiry the modes of symbolic self-representation about which each human system auto-institutes itself, the modes of self-troping rhetoricity through which the subject, individual or collective, actualizes its mode of being as a living entity. In addition, it takes the ratiomorphic apparatus or episteme, which exists as the enabling rational worldview of the self-troping mode of being, as an object of inquiry in the comparative context in which it is definable as one of the cognitive mechanisms determined by the psychogeny of the human, rather than the phylogeny of purely biological organisms. If low visibility is a problem with winter storms of the snowy kind, winter's prose can sometimes feel like a storm of ideas, combining her undoubtedly high intelligence with the problem of low intelligibility. For some of the terminology here, though, you just need to have enough background in her source texts. For example, the word episteme, which is derived from the word for knowledge in ancient Greek, was used by the French philosopher Michel Foucault to describe the rules for a whole system of thought that prevails within a given historical time. People understand the world from within the episteme, but do so unconsciously. It's a bit like seeing the world through tinted glasses that you don't realize you're wearing, which is why Winter also calls it an apparatus. Another analogy, used by Winter herself, is that humans are like bees who spend their whole lives in a beehive and know nothing about the hive because they never see it from the outside. The new science she is envisioning would stand at the end of a long historical evolution in which different epistemes were challenged and replaced, without ever managing to reach a system of understanding or knowledge that could legitimately be said to study the human as such. A pivotal moment in Winter's understanding of that historical evolution was archival research she did in the early 1980s on the voyage of Christopher Columbus. This was in preparation for the commemoration of the 500th anniversary of his 1492 voyage, something that was controversial in her home island of Jamaica, given its fateful, and for so many fatal, consequences. Winter was struck by how this event was, as she put it, Janus-faced. On the one hand, the encounter with the so-called New World changed Europeans' understanding of themselves, decentering them by making them realize that the Earth contained peoples whose lives and histories were entirely independent. She compared this to the way Copernicus's astronomy quite literally decentered the Earth within the universe. On the other hand, there were those fatal consequences, all the conquests, massacres, enslavements, and colonizations that Columbus set in train. How was it that Europeans, presented with powerful evidence that their place in the world was not as special as they had supposed, reacted by asserting unique privileges to subjugate the rest of humanity. As Winter considered this problem, she came to see the paradox as just one instance of a repeated pattern. European culture always defined itself in opposition to some other, even in the face of overwhelming evidence of shared humanity. This is, in her terms, a refusal to accept the homogeneity of humankind. She begins from the medieval era, when the other against which Christians of Europe defined themselves was God 
in the Renaissance, the humanists engaged in a project of what she calls de-godding, focusing on this world and embracing what had previously been seen as all-too-human traits and values. This went nicely with the decentering implications of the discoveries made by Copernicus and Columbus. Whether European or American, we are all humans, all on the same planet, orbiting the same sun. But instead of accepting the implications of humanism fully, the Europeans found new categories to set themselves off against a new other, namely the so-called natives of this so-called new world. They said to themselves, we are the epitome of man, the bearers of rationality and civilization. They even produced images to capture this idealization of themselves, like Leonardo da Vinci's drawing of the Vitruvian man. You know the image where a man's limbs are shown extending to the edge of a circle. By contrast, they, meaning the peoples of the Americas, are savages who fall short of full humanity. The same rationale was later deployed to justify the Atlantic slave trade. The Negro, or African, was, in the early modern European imagination, entirely subjected to physical necessity, more like an animal driven by base urges than a human in possession of reason and civilized culture. Moving through the next centuries, winter finds the cycle repeating. New upheavals should again have led to a recognition of equality among all humans. For instance, old ideas rooted in feudal culture, like the notion of noble blood, were displaced in favor of a capitalist free-for-all. More fundamentally still, Darwin's theory of evolution showed that when it comes right down to it, we're all just apes with ideas above our station. Faced with this, the bourgeoisie were again in need of a worldview that made them better than everyone else. Evolution could provide the solution to the problem it had created. The favored group just needed to believe that while all humans are products of evolution, a select few are considerably more evolved than everyone else. These few formed what Winter calls an ethno-class, convinced of its own superiority. Back in episode 58, we saw how Antenor Femin already debunked this sort of pseudoscience, which was intended to keep white Europeans on top of the social, economic, and political hierarchy. Of course, through all these changes, it was especially white men who claimed this special or heterogeneous place. But in Winter's work, race is given priority over gender as a category of analysis, for what she calls epistemological reasons. She means that race is more revealing of the pattern that she sees repeating itself across early modern and contemporary history, whereby much of humanity is defined as other and inferior in order to assert and reassert the dominance of one relatively small group of humans. As with other Black women thinkers we have considered, there's been controversy over the question of whether to think of any of Winter's works as feminist or, failing that, perhaps womanist. Those interested in the topic will certainly want to read the afterword she provided to Out of the Kumbla, Caribbean Women and Literature, a 1990 collection of writing about the place of women in Caribbean literature, written mostly by women from the Caribbean, and edited by a past guest of ours, Carol Boyce Davies, along with Elaine Savory Fido. It's important to bear in mind that the repeated pattern Winter traces is not a matter of conscious decision or deliberate conspiracy. Each of the phases in Winter's story involves an episteme, in Foucault's terms, which means a whole system of thought that lies deeper than a theory or a set of explicitly formulated ideas. It sets the boundaries of what people are able to think. In fact, even those who are most victimized by such conceptions often share them unquestioningly. This is a good example of a point where Winter is very close to Fanon. She credits him with the insight that black people, too, are often trapped within a worldview that exalts white people. This resonated with her own experience so powerfully that she once identified as her guiding thread the question, 
how do you deal with the stereotyped view of yourself that you yourself have been socialized to accept? The first step would of course be to notice that one is indeed trapped in a falsifying worldview and try to step outside it. How would we do this? One pithy way to formulate her answer would be, if we are studying humanity, we need the humanities. Only the study of topics like literature, history, and philosophy can free us from what she once called, following Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, our inner eyes. They free us intellectually, at least, from our own time and place, giving us a perspective or vantage point from which we can finally see the tinted glasses we and everyone else have been wearing. Winter makes the bold claim that, it is the literary humanities which should be the umbrella site for the transdisciplinary realization of a science of human systems. But Winter certainly did not want to discard the physical sciences. Her new science would in fact be a fusion, bringing together the insights of biology and the humanities to reveal laws that govern the behavior of all humans. She again draws on Fanon here, borrowing his term sociogeny for the project. She also uses two more ancient Greek terms, saying the new science would bring together mythos and bios, meaning in this context roughly narrative and life. Winter's ambitious argument for the value, indeed the essential importance, of the humanities includes the claim that one approach in particular is especially well-placed to free us from our unconscious preconceptions. This is the approach taken by black studies, or more generally academic subdisciplines associated with so-called minorities. In the late 20th century, these were increasingly finding a place within universities, as with the department Winter chaired at Stanford and the Center of Black Studies led by Cedric Robinson at UC Santa Barbara. But these undertakings were fairly precarious and marginal, a concession grudgingly conceded, and certainly nothing that had become central to the mission of higher education in America. While Winter obviously lamented this, she saw the marginality, or as she sometimes says, liminality, of minority studies as a hidden strength. These were disciplines that could adopt an external observer position on the intellectual projects pursued by the rest of the academic community and reveal the underlying Eurocentrism and racism of those projects. Winter put these insights to work in an essay she prepared in support of efforts by Joyce King, a professor of education, to oppose the recommendation of particular textbooks by the California Curriculum Development and Supplemental Materials Commission. In 1990, Winter's essay was published as a book titled Do Not Call Us Negroes, How Multicultural Textbooks Perpetuate Racism. In it, she is highly critical of multiculturalism, understood as the idea that minority viewpoints should be added to the existing teaching plan. Progressives who supported this often hastened to reassure the public that the common values of American society would be retained, celebrating the founding fathers, the thinkers of the Enlightenment, and so on. But these topics would be enriched with some consideration of minority perspectives, and thus marginalized voices would finally be heard, even if they would remain on the margins. For Winter, this policy, however well-meaning, simply overlooked the challenge posed by minority studies, which is that existing cultural values assume and perpetuate unjust hierarchies. On this point, Winter acknowledged the work of a fellow Caribbean thinker, Elsa Govea, whom we mentioned as a mentor of Walter Rodney in episode 123. She was especially influenced by a piece by Govea from 1970 called The Social Framework. Winter regularly taught it in her classes. In this essay, Govea argued that the celebration of the diversity of Caribbean culture had actually reinforced inequality by encouraging complacent acceptance of the prevailing current social arrangement, for instance, with the darkest skinned people at the bottom of the ladder. 
as Winter summarizes the point, cultural pluralism has been a smokescreen for the integration of the Caribbean society's ethnic and racial groups on the basis of a single shared and common culture, which was both unifying and hierarchical. She felt the same was true of 1990s multiculturalism in America. For Winter, minority studies reveals the fundamental limitations and deeply ingrained injustices of the American, or more broadly, Eurocentric worldview. The school reform she envisions would not merely be a matter of teaching, say, the history of slavery or Jim Crow alongside a traditional approach to the rest of European and American history. It would involve reframing that entire history. The previously marginal perspective of the disfavored would be transformed into the central perspective, which would be a more human perspective. Despite being a book, Do Not Call Us Negroes is shorter than many of Winter's seminal essays. Whether the ceremony must be found, or to take another example, the famous essay she published in the New Centennial Review in 2003 titled Unsettling the Coloniality of Being, Power, Truth, Freedom Towards the Human After Man, Its Overrepresentation and Argument, these essays can sometimes feel like little books in themselves. Even their titles can feel like they're stretching to book length. Winter fans might wish that she had published her complex, sprawling ideas under a nice short title like the one chosen by Cedric Robinson, Black Marxism. If so, they almost got that wish. There is a 935-page book manuscript bearing a similar title, Black Metamorphosis. Winter worked on it throughout the 1970s and likely into the early 1980s, but never finished preparing it for publication. It remains unpublished, and is housed, along with correspondence related to it, at the famous Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in Harlem. How did it get there? Why hasn't it been published yet? Can we expect it to be published someday? These are all understandable questions that have arisen in the wake of the manuscript's rediscovery by Winter scholars, starting with an article by Derek White from 2010. Correspondence shows that she began preparing the work for publication by the Institute of the Black World, a think tank we mentioned in episode 123 in the context of explaining the genesis of another book, Walter Rodney Speaks. Winter's project gradually became a very ambitious treatment of the transformation of culture through the plantation experience and a number of related topics. She even published a bit of it as an article called Sambos and Minstrels in the first ever issue of the journal Social Text. Eventually, however, the Institute of the Black World no longer existed, and the manuscript ended up at the Schomburg as part of the collection of materials associated with the history of the Institute. Winter did not bother mentioning the work even in interviews going over her life and thought in detail, but now that interest in the book has been renewed, for instance, it's the principal text of Winter's that Kamifisha explores in Beyond Coloniality, it seems not unlikely that publication of the book will come eventually. If so, its readers will find that it is more than similar titles that connect Winter's Black Metamorphosis to Robinson's Black Marxism. Derek White has pointed out that Winter appears to exemplify the pattern of transcending Marxism that Robinson sees as vital to his understanding of the Black radical tradition. White calls the level of intellectual honesty that Winter displays in the manuscript as it currently exists rare. At a certain point, for instance, she openly contradicts an analysis of Black stereotyping that comes earlier in her own manuscript on the grounds that it reduces the stereotype's function to economic exploitation. This shows a Marxist approach that she has in the meantime come to reject. Disagreeing with her former self, Winter thinks that both Marxism and capitalism wrongly marginalize the cultural dimension of existence by focusing on economics. Given that Winter celebrates the marginality of Black studies, and that we recently discussed a book by Bell Hooks called From the Margin to the Center, 
our transition to the next episode makes perfect sense. We'll be remaining with the theme of controversial thoughts on culture by finally discussing Molefi Asante's Afrocentricity and other related forms of African-centered thought. Like Winter in her Dancing Days, that's what will be center stage next time, here on The History of Africana Philosophy. <music>